0: Why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? You're listening to the Parking Podcast. Views and opinions are my own. This episode is brought to you by the International Parking and Mobility Institute, the world's largest association of professionals in parking, transportation, and mobility. Learn more at parking mobility.org. Welcome back to another episode of The Parking Podcast. Joining us on the podcast today is Dr. Donald Shoup, Distinguished Research Professor of Urban Planning at UCLA, and of course, author of what some would call The Parking Bible, The High Cost of Free Parking, and also recently authored uh, Parking in the City, which I just got my hands on as well. So how are you doing today, Dr. Shoup?
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, Mm. thanks for joining. So I always like to ask our guests how they got into parking, and you are no exception. In fact, I'm a little... Even more intrigued with you and how someone makes the decision to dedicate their academic careers to the parking meter. So take us back to the beginning. How did you end up thinking about parking the way that you do?
1: Well, like everybody else, I suppose I backed into the parking industry. I I, I started out as an electrical engineer as an undergraduate and then got a PhD in economics, and when I was writing a dissertation, I focused on the land market, which was sort of an unpopular topic then, as an old-fashioned thing to study, but it fascinated me, and because of that, I went into urban planning, um, and it didn't take me long to realize that uh, the single biggest use in, in almost every city is, is parking, you know, more, the, the parking footprint is bigger than the housing footprint or the office building footprint in total everywhere. Even curb parking is a is a is a big share of, of cities land. But I thought it was very mismanaged that that the normally when you think of land you think of these developers think of it as what is the highest and best use. You know, how, how should I use this land to get the greatest value from it? but almost all car parking is free. So here's some of the most valuable land on earth uh, given away free if you if you park a car in it. So I thought that the, there must be something wrong with that. And um, I guess as an engineer, I was a bit of a problem solver. So I, I guess my career uh, looks more like a random walk than any, any decision to, to move into parking. I, it just sort of happened like, to many other people. And I suppose in academic life, it was easier to study than most other topics. For one, you can see everything just by looking. Um, you have a lot of experience with uh, practical knowledge. And, and I think that I was, uh, among academics, I was uh, almost alone, uh, partly because um, it was such an unfashionable topic, and maybe even still is that the universities talk about equality and equity an awful lot and getting rid of hierarchy and but universities are extraordinarily hierarchical you know the the titles we use suggest how 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 unequal everybody is. We have chancellors and vice chancellors and assistant vice chancellors and deans and provosts and Professors and associate professors, assistant professors and lecturers and, and then graduate students and undergraduates and in that you have seniors and juniors and sophomores. So I think it's it's very hierarchical. And it's not just the, the titles we have, but it's the, the topics we study that national affairs are, are very important and international affairs are very important. And state affairs are a big step down and local affairs seem parochial. And I think the lowest status thing to study in local government would be parking. Uh, So I've been a bottom feeder for for, for decades, but there's a lot of food down there. And it was easy to find. I I suppose that was it. There was so much to learn for an academic uh, without a whole lot of effort. And and now I think that uh, other academics have discovered it's almost like a feeding frenzy. There's so many publications on parking now. Um,
0: Well, that was my question because you're... I know you're a certified planner and you're in academia and planning, so is the tide changing? Do you see parking 101 as a as a class that freshmen will take one day do you you start seeing more and more of that being thrown into the study of planning and mobility
1: uh it'll take quite a while, I think that uh, it still sounds like a very low class thing to study. <laughs> Partly because you know the parking industry itself doesn't have that great a reputation. Um, that I think from the outside it seemed like people trying to gouge the greatest amount of money you can get out of uh, out of parking. Yes, and I do teach one course uh, on, on parking for uh, at, at UCLA, which is popular with a lot of students, and I think it's especially important for urban planning because I think. The cities do exactly the wrong thing with with parking everything i recommend is exactly opposite of what cities do you know basically i have three recommendations one is uh, to charge uh, the fair market price for for using the curb and by which i mean the lowest price the city can charge and still have one or two open curb spaces on every block If it, if it's used for parking that it should be uh, priced so that there's never a shortage. There are always one or two open spaces. So whenever you go to a destination, you can't say there's a shortage of parking because you see open spaces everywhere. But instead of that, cities mainly have uh, free parking at the curb. Parking meters are are the exception. Exactly the wrong thing to do. So I say instead of having it free, it should be um, charged the way we charge for everything else, like gasoline and tires and, and the cars themselves uh, that you expect to pay for what you use. So that's that's the first policy I recommend that I think the cities are doing just the opposite. And the second, I think I should, I say that cities should remove all off-street parking requirements, and instead cities have off-street parking requirements for everything except for a few cities that have made reforms now.
0: I saw Edmonton recently. Was a couple couple cities I've seen in recent recent weeks yes. that have eliminated parking minimums.
1: Yes, and Edmonton is sort of well the Houston <laughs> of of Canada. That it's it's a you know an oil city and with a huge amount of parking. I just I I did go to Canada in the fall to to evangelize and. Anyway, I think cities—the second cities require parking—and I say cities should not require parking, or maybe even limit off-street parking, but certainly not to require a minimum. And then the third recommendation I make is—is is to make these other two policies popular. You know, charging market prices for curb parking and removing off-street parking requirements, The cities should dedicate all or some of the revenue from the meters to pay for added public services on the metered streets so that everybody can see their meter money at work. Cleaning the sidewalks, planting street trees, extra security. Some cities give free Wi-Fi to everybody uh, on the metered
0: streets. And I live in Chattanooga, as we talked about before we started recording. But what they did when they put in the paid parking is that they have a free electric shuttle downtown. It's free for anyone. It's electric. People love it. It goes all around downtown in a loop. And the parking proceeds fund that. So it's a big hit. And that was a good turning point. And I've, so as, as I've talked about on the podcast in the past, you know, I implement parking in a lot of cities and th- this is usually the turning point. Like you said, it, it makes it popular is when I'm standing in front of a city. And that's one of my recommendations is that if you're putting in the paid parking, the meters, we recommend the money go back in towards the community where the meters are going in. So whether it's putting in that dog park or lights or landscaping or accessibility. Uh, And that's usually a huge selling point rather than putting in the general fund. I run a lot of coastal cities and a lot of them put the uh, beachfront parking and then the money goes towards, I forgot what they call it, but keeping the sand on the beaches and keeping the beaches clean. And so it's popular even in in tourist areas as well. So I love that point.
1: I think it's especially popular in tourist areas because the locals are not the ones who are paying for parking. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, It's it's like, Money Python's idea of solving Britain's economic problems by taxing foreigners yeah. living abroad, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I think it's, or it's like a hotel tax or uh, a tax on rental cars at airports. The, the, the expense seems to fall on, on outsiders. I, I recommend that you know that there would be signs on everything. It's paid for by the parking meters.
0: Yeah, I saw your article. I think it was maybe Pasadena. They had the sign on every meter that says this meter paid for X. I can't remember what it was, but I thought that was really neat.
1: That's right. Clean and safe. The things that the Business Improvement District works for. I was in uh, speaking in Boston once. They had a whole day of, uh, on on parking. It was a big conference. A lot of people from New England came. And the lunchtime speaker, um, was she She never... Worked on parking, but she was uh, very experienced in transportation. I think she's the Cal- uh, uh, Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation now. But she said a very interesting thing. She said, if you're going to talk about you know, parking reform, uh, you shouldn't even mention parking. You should ask people, what is it that you want? You know, Do you really? would you like to have an electric shuttle bus downtown or just say, what do they want? And then find out what their highest priority is and say, well, here's a way to pay for it that some cities have used is to, is to have these market priced curb parking. And then the idea seems to come from them. They say, well, this would be a good way to pay for what I want. So I think that the linking between the the payment and what the payment pays for (laughs) is is so important. And, and you should just ask the, the, the stakeholders what they want and say, well, and then, of course, it, as a parking expert, you say, well, it has these other advantages that it manages demand and makes parking accessible. And it, it increases the support for parking enforcement. Uh, because if you're if you're parking without pay, in a sense, you're denying <laughs> the block, what it used to, to put flower baskets on the light poles or, or whatever they want. Uh, yep. So I think it, it also uh, has implications for the willingness to uh, have parking enforcement for the meters.
0: Yeah, I've tried to champion the idea. I don't know if, if you're on Amazon Prime a lot, but uh, you can choose your charity. So you can pick something you're passionate about and they'll donate money every time you buy something. I love the idea for parking tickets, so I'm trying to get a city to take me up on that where someone pays a parking ticket, you could choose what initiative you want your funds going towards, that way the parking funds go to something that you care about, and then they're more likely, hypothetically, to pay their parking tickets.
1: The cities now are desperate for money, so I mean, that means they're less willing to give it away, but I think that because they're desperate for money, they should rethink the idea of giving away the curb lane for free.
0: Let me ask you this hypothetical situation here, because you're talking about the revenue going back into the community. Uh, I've gotten this question a lot where I've had cities that maybe don't have a parking problem. It, they could have one in the future because they're developing something, but let's just say they have enough room for, there's no cruising, okay? There's, there's a couple open spots every block. Would you support putting in paid parking just to put to have a revenue stream that goes back into the community?
1: No, no, I don't think so. I think that if you did start charging for parking, you'd increase the vacancy rate and reduce the customers for the stores and restaurants that are on the street. No, I don't think you should charge for parking. If there's a, uh,
0: if it's not broken, don't fix it.
1: Yeah, the market price is zero, <laughs> and it yep. should be zero. But I, I do like your idea of, of choosing a charity. In
0: fact, some- well, not charity, just yeah. I think something that the city's raising funds for. So, not necessarily a uh, charity, but just something the city can, the, the city's saving for, or, you know, it can go towards lighting or accessibility, uh, parking or sidewalk repair, because maybe this guy hates the pothole. So, when he pays his parking ticket, he selects something and that's how the money is uh, distributed.
1: Yes. Well, s- some uh, shopping malls have a, a smart policy, I think, that the, you know, the most convenient spaces are the ones that everybody wants to park in. And even if they're going to stay there for a long time, they'll they'll park in one of those spaces. When but they're better suited to somebody who's going to stay for a short time to to run in and make a quick purchase and come out. So some um, uh, shopping centers put parking meters in the most convenient spaces and say that all the revenue goes to charity that they identify, yep. so that it doesn't look like a money grab. It's a donation to charity. So I think if if as a way towards uh, charging for parking, when the meters are are always unpopular. Nobody wants to pay for parking, including me and you. But if you know that you see on the sign that all this money goes to disabled military veterans or to, they, they usually change the the charity every year. Well, uh, so I good. think that that's 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 one way to do it. It's similar to what you the idea you
0: had about yeah. where should the money for uh, tickets go and we're seeing that now with cities starting to reopen um, a lot of cities are nervous about charging with covid so they're <sighs> donating the funds towards uh, ppe equipment or the downtown businesses so i love seeing that but yeah it's just an idea i had not necessarily charities but just initiatives in downtown so you can kind of uh, choose choose your choose what you're passionate about
1: yes and i uh, another example of that is the i think the very backward policy that some cities have of turning the parking meters off during the the christmas season uh there was a, a christmas gift from the mayor of the city council is to have free parking and please don't stay too long
0: um i was gonna say that's the probably the time we need paid parking the most is when everyone's that's, downtown that's, shopping.
1: that's right um That's why I say that cities should, instead of getting it free, they should keep the meters going and maybe running them later in the evening, but donate all the revenue to pay for homeless services or something like that. That's much more of a charitable uh, activity during the the Christmas season uh, uh, is to give money to charity rather than to help freeloading really messes up the parking system. So I think, well, you probably know more about this than I do as to how to get things done in the cities. But I think that if you can, you can make people, people feel good about paying for parking, that your, your, your job is going to be a lot easier.
0: Well, I'm just tickled. You said I know more about something than, than Dr. Shoup. So I'm going to just save that little recording there and just keep playing it over and over.
1: uh, Well, but it isn't isn't just you. It's it's just probably all of your listeners know a lot more about parking than I do. Yeah, uh, no, because it's their livelihood, it's their profession, and a lot of experience that I don't have. So, but I, I I think I probably do know a bit more about urban planning than most of them, and how the aggregate consequences (laughs) of what we've been doing are terrible.
0: Uh, you mentioned something. You said you and I don't like paying for parking. I always tell the story. So I used to go to the gym on my lunch break when the meters were from 8 to 5, and I'd always get to park right in front of the gym, pay the meter, get in, get out, shower, get back to work. Anytime I went after work when the meters ended at five, oh, it was miserable. There was no parking because everyone parked at the, at the meters. They were free, and I had to park far away and got more of a workout running to the gym than actually Time at the gym. Uh-huh. So, and I like when I'm speaking in front of cities, I tell the story of uh, uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. They have a national ice cream day where and maybe you've used this, maybe I stole this from you. I can't remember, but in Chattanooga, we have a Ben and Jerry's one day a year. It's free ice cream day. And my kids say, Can we please go? It's free ice cream day. And the line is going out the store around uh-huh. the block. And I say, I would rather go tomorrow and no line, pay $2 for your ice cream than stay. And wait two hours for something for free, and I was like, the light bulb went off, I man. That's that's soup right there. That's that's parking. So, and of course, all this is from the high cost free parking he mentioned. Number one, charge for parking at a fair rate. You know, get that one or two open spaces, eighty-five percent, if you will. A Second, put that money back into the downtowns, and then third, the parking minimum. So, love the book. Our listeners are familiar with that. Let's talk parking minimums. I've seen some some funny ones over the years. I think the 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 one that always stood out was the I can't remember, but something about nunneries, one parking space for every 10 beds or something. Are there other crazy examples like that that, that you've seen with parking minimum requirements?
1: Well, I think I usually in a lecture, I give a you know, a list of them like the uh, one parking space for 2,500 gallons of water at a swimming pool or <laughs> one space for every one and a half fuel nozzles at a gas station and, and of course one space for every, ten nuns, and three spaces for every um, priest, <laughs> every, every, oh, I guess, monk, <laughs> something like that. It's always wow. at least one one parking space per person, except for religious uses. And Even then, there's gender discrimination, say, for I, there one city had a barber shop, had to have uh, two spaces for every barber chair, you know, sort of, I suppose, one for the barber and one for the person in the chair, and then. But three, I think one space for, uh, you know, two spaces for every uh, chair. So, and I'm sorry, three spaces for every chair at a beauty, sh- uh, beauty shop is oh, wow. <laughs> though there's a gender discrimination. And um, I think the, the maximum number of interments at a, per hour at a mausoleum, or I think that the most bizarre ones are for funeral parlors because they, there's so many different bases. There's a number of hearses or the number of square feet in reposing rooms. <laughs> so I think I counted 45 different parking requirements for, for mortuaries, but mm-hmm. and each one of them made some sense if you looked at it separately. But when you looked at all of them together, it should produce very grave questions about minimum parking requirements.
0: And so these, we're still seeing these in cities across America?
1: I'm, I'm sure they're multiplying because every time there's a new land use, they have to have a parking requirement. One of the most recent um, additions here in Los Angeles for a nail salon. Well, suppose you were a planner and they said, well, what is the parking requirement for a nail salon? What would you do? If you went to planning school, you'd learn nothing about parking except how it got in the way parking requirements, except how they get in the way of everything you want to do, like having affordable housing or or higher density or uh, lower traffic. The parking requirements are nothing but an obstacle uh, for a planning student. But then they then they get to work at a planning agency, and the only thing they can do is enforce the parking
0: requirements because it's in the law. You know, with, with COVID and, you know, as we move to more autonomous and connected society of the ride share and food deliveries do you what do you think is there going to be a catalyst that shifts shifts i don't know that, that ends this is there is there change are we are we starting to see that the change now what's your take on where we stand now
1: well, I, think, I think obviously not just in parking but i think it's the the pandemic is is accelerating a lot of changes that, that would have would have happened like the the, the shift of retail uh, that we probably have we've always had far too many malls i think and now now we really know it uh and so some malls will probably be redeveloped as uh, you know for new uses as universities or housing or they're very they're very flexible Yes, I think that the pandemic will make everything happen. One thing that the pandemic should accelerate is the um, idea of variable prices for curb parking. I think that if you, if you set prices uh, yes. uh, based on demand, when the demand goes down, the prices go down. So in a recession, I had thought during a recession that automatically the, the prices would go down at meters because the demand goes down but it will keep the spaces almost all full so it would help to to preserve the economic viability of the, of the neighborhood if prices go down when demand goes down because it will keep the, the 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 spaces occupied by people who are going into the stores and this is made obvious during the covid because uh, some cities just turned off the parking meters. They they just had it just they just went on or off. There's yeah. nothing in between. You couldn't say, well, let's reduce the price. But I think if prices automatically followed demand, they would very quickly go down during COVID on their own. It wouldn't take a city council to decide that we should yeah. turn off the parking meters. It's, it's it's in the legislation. Say like in a number of cities, they say that have reformed, they say we want to have one or two open spaces on every block. I mean, that is part of the, the legislation. And that means it's the, the parking authority's responsibility to lower prices when demand goes down.
0: Yeah, I review a lot of ordinances as part of my job when talking to cities. And you're right, a lot of them have the the meter rate per hour shall be, you know, from 1992. And to, to change the rates, you got to get in front of city council and get those ordinances passed. And, you know, I know with the dynamic, we do it with, of course, the airline, hotels, you know, parking, we've seen one or two cities try it. We could talk about that. But uh, I think one argument I got when I'm talking to cities about this is, and I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you the question. So coffee shop on a busy street, we got to charge $3 an hour to get one or two open spaces per block. Another coffee shop farther out a quarter an hour and they get that one or two open spaces and then they're arguing saying that's not fair. People are going to go to his coffee shop. We both pay taxes. What would you say to something like that? You get a question like that in a meeting.
1: Well, that is is a great question. I confess I had never thought of it before, but I I have a couple of answers. Uh, One, if as you say that the price is $3 because a lower price would mean that all the spaces are full all the time, people would say, well, this place is, there's no place to park, you know, that it will it will discourage people, especially the coffee shop, where people don't spend a lot of time, that if you lower the price at the, the meters, that the people will stay longer, and I think, I think the coffee shop will be the one to suffer. So that would be one explanation of why you should uh, set the price at $3 in your example, because that's what's needed to make the spaces available. The second thing I would say is that if we committed the, the revenue to pay for added public services on that block with maybe extra flower planting or, or extra Christmas decorations or whatever the, the, the business improvement district, for example, would like, then the, the, the coffee shop would understand. Or, or that, like in some cities they give free Wi-Fi to everybody on the block then the coffee shop wouldn't have to provide its own Wi-Fi for its customers. See, now it is that every shop has to say, well, every coffee shop has to provide internet service because that's what people <laughs> go for it in some cases. that I, I think then if they saw the use of the $3 an hour on providing something that they really want, then they wouldn't object to uh, having prices based on, on demand. and uh, the area where the parking is only 50 cents an hour uh, that i think if that's enough to provide all the open spaces we need then that that's the price there too but i think that getting back to your your question is to how do you how do you defend the the high prices to a, to a coffee shop is one is the the simple thing to do is to say, well, the money goes for, for what you wanted to go for. But the second one, is what a parking analyst would say, this, this is what we need.
0: uh oh, to interrupt, but yeah, I like we said, with the with the alternative is there's no you don't raise the rates. There's no parking and no one coming to your shop. Period. So this is at least opening up spaces for the coffee shop. Well,
1: I I ran into a similar problem, uh, you know, because I I do um, uh, evangelize <laughs> going around to different cities. At least I used to. Well, well people did that. But the, I was visiting Del Rey in Florida, Delray Beach in Florida, a, a wonderful
0: town that I really hadn't, uh, I hadn't even been to Florida before. Our company actually but, helped uh, put in those those meters. So you're evangelizing work.
1: Is that right? Well, I, 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 you probably liked it as well. We stayed in a wonderful sort of low, low density hotel right on the beach. And I was Blown away about how wonderful the beaches were. The water was warm. The water oh, yeah. was clean. The sand yeah. was beautiful. Much better than in California, where the water is
0: cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh, I, I was—I uh, thought it was wonderful. But they didn't have any parking meters, or the so they they invited me to speak. It was a wonderful auditorium uh, that was in a school that was uh, built in the 1920s. Uh, like they call uh, it
0: the and, old school, maybe old school out, yeah.
1: I guess so, yes. And, and so I, you know, talked for an hour or, or more, the way I usually do, and, and uh, it seemed to go over very well. There were parking consultants there who wrote to me afterwards. But then the next day, the mayor invited me to speak at the city hall, and I got there And there was a long rectangular table. The mayor and I sat at one end and then maybe 14 sort of uh, civic leaders around the table. And then the mayor said, well, can you repeat what you said last night? (laughs) But I'm used to explaining things in my elevator presentation. And I thought, well, if they some of them must have heard the talk. Many of them said they had heard the talk. And I thought that things would go well from there. But as soon as I finished talking, the guy next to me on the right-hand side, you know, uh, on the long side, he started waving this sheet of paper and saying, I have a signature, a sheet with signatures of 120 merchants who were utterly opposed to everything you have said. And I was quite taken aback, but, you know, I'm an outsider, a a loose cannon, and I got into quite a, a, a hefty argument with them. And it was sort of unfair, because you know I've studied this for a long time, and I have all my <laughs> answers ready and he he eventually sort of stopped, stopped talking, and then but I got no help from anybody else at the table until after it sort of subsided this guy at the end said, "What is your problem are you Are you alarmed that the people who would pay for parking wouldn't be willing to shop at your store?" And he knew what the guy did. He, he had a thrift shop, you know, just very... <laughs> here on the main street of a great tourist town, he had a, a shop selling used, used <laughs> furniture and things like that. And he probably was rational that his customers would not be willing to pay for parking. And So I did understand that it can favor... The 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 market price of curb parking can favor some businesses more than others, but how many people does a thrift shop employ compared to a a, a restaurant with cooks and and waiters and all, all things like that? I think that the free parking probably favors businesses that have very few employees and, and don't pay much sales tax or property tax or anything else. I'm quite amazed at Delray Beach. And it's a tourist town. You know, the prices go up and down from winter to summer. Maybe they have to pay the people to come there to visit in the summer, for all I know, because the, <laughs> the climate is great in the winter, but not yeah. in the summer. So they're used to, they, they know that a lot of their parking users are, are from New York or Michigan. And, and that, that's right. One of the people said, well, these old people, you know, the 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 older visitors, they would not know how to operate a parking meter. Nice. <laughs> well, I don't think you should. I should personally be offended by your saying that older people <laughs> couldn't understand how to use a parking meter. I said most of these visitors from New York and Michigan know much more about parking meters yeah, than you
0: do. Exactly. I mean, right. people people will say
1: anything about parking.
0: You don't have they, the benefit that I have because. When I do this, and I get a lot of angry business owners that maybe just don't get it, I get the luxury of pointing my finger at you. I said, "Well, this this guy named Dr. Donald Shute wrote this book about it. Blame him, not me. I'm just telling you the facts. You don't get that luxury because you are the buck stops with you." So, that's well, I,
1: I think that, that maybe you've had this happen to you as well. But you know, after I got into this very heated argument with this guy, the, a mayor couldn't or a council member couldn't uh, argue with him but they sat around and as it turned out everybody at that table except that guy agreed with me but they would not speak up
0: yeah no that's that's typical and and i found like everyone has something they're passionate about so you know sometimes it's the sustainability so you talk about the cruising and the emissions some people hate traffic so i talk about how it will fix the traffic i talk about of course the biggest selling point is look the revenue we want it to go back into the downtown. So it's going to beautify your city. It's going to do so much good. It's going to increase business sales because people will have parking to get in and out quicker. Yeah, no, I, I'm so curious. I'm glad you said that because it, sometimes it's hard to have those uncomfortable conversations, but I do it because I know it's the right thing to do. Like you said, I've told cities, I asked you a question earlier about if they don't have a parking problem where they've charged. I've told cities, like, I'm telling you not to charge. You don't need to. We did this study. The market price is zero, so it's it's you know I know it's not a it's when you're doing the right thing it, it makes it easier, but sometimes it's a little frustrating when to get that point across. I think I talked about this and we talked about this offline, but I came across a almost like a parking version of the onion, and there was a headline that said business owner selling things that no one cares about blames the blames the meters for uh, so a lot of times it's the scapegoat the parking meters while I'm going out of business, not because i I don't have a, a good concept yeah. here, but, uh, that's, <laughs> but yeah,
1: the, the easiest thing to say is that due to the parking meters. Well, well, congratulations on, on um, putting the parking meters in in Delray beach because it didn't happen for a long time. Oh, you know, I thought, well, they'll do it yeah. tomorrow as yeah, the mayor was in favor, of it, but it took them a long time to do it.
0: 2018. I believe. They got, they hired a good parking manager from another city, George Alacarn, a great guy. And he, he championed for it. He they put out an RFP and we ended up doing it along the beachfront and then the downtown the next year. So they've got paid parking everywhere. I would say a lot of them, because I have to go, I've gone a couple of times to, you know, give an update. And a lot of the business owners, you know, they, they've seen the results and most of them are pleased and happy about it. So I hope that helps you sleep at night.
1: Well, when I was there, there were all the talkers about building another parking structure. You know, that's going to solve the problem. We'll keep the curb parking free and build a parking structure that we'll have to charge for. <laughs> it yeah. just made no sense in a tourist town. I think in a tourist town, the, the the rationale for market price curb parking is even greater than it is less touristy towns. Because exactly. The, I wonder if the, the sign that I took a picture of is still there. It said parking for armored cars only. And I thought, my God, what is that? <laughs> it was for... The for... money pickups, yeah. That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the National Tank Museum must be in the city or something. That's, that's funny. What, so what about time limits? Here's my question. In a paid parking environment, is there a need for two-hour time limits, three-hour time limits, or should that be fixed through pricing?
1: Well, I just don't know. I think that the the time limits are less necessary. I mean, the the time limits are from the the period when we thought the way to get parking availability was to have turnover. You know, the cities could measure turnover if they worked hard at it. And they said, well, that's how we make parking available is through turnover. But uh, if your goal is to make parking available, uh, then I think the, the right price is the way to do it. And some cities that that started charging for parking, they did eliminate the, the time limits. But I think that the curb spaces might be more useful for the businesses if there is turnover. So I recommend that the alternative is to have progressive parking prices, that each hour, each succeeding hour is more. <laughs> Expensive the longer you stay. That it might be, you know, a dollar an hour for the first hour, and two dollars for the second hour, and three dollars for the third hour. So that you can make the decision on how long you want to stay. But if you want to stay long, a long time, you have to pay a a hefty amount. And I think Albany started this, and it it turned out that without the time limits, but with the progressive parking prices the turnover increased and the revenue increased. Uh, yeah. If somebody really does need to park for three hours for you know, some important event on the, uh, that they're visiting, they should be allowed to stay there if they pay for it. So yeah, I think we, progressive. We did that in,
0: in, in Beaufort, North Carolina, and saw two parking lots right next to each other. The city allowed us to pilot one of them with what we called escalated pricing, what you're, what you're talking about. And we saw it made more- revenue that went back into downtown, of course. It it had more parking availability. It allowed people to, to stay longer versus the other lot, which had the two-hour time limit, was always full and didn't make as much revenue. So we really like that concept.
1: Well, I think that's the kind of thing that I, I I wish that you and others would write articles about. See, I mean, that is a, a test that it could go into one of the parking journals, I think, with pictures and things like that and the revenue and I suppose in academia the 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 rule is that if, if it didn't if it's not published it didn't happen <laughs> that if it's not written down it didn't happen. So I think that one recommendation I'd like to give to your listeners is to write more articles about the things that work, uh, and I suppose about the things that don't work. That uh, there are a lot of parking today and. Parking, IPMI, and more. MPA, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the three major publications that um, that they do publish a lot of very good things and they're also the institute of transportation engineers has its its journal i think there're probably a lot of good things that are happening like the ones that you described that the whole the whole nation should know about
0: yeah no i i i think that's a great challenge for our listeners and myself as well in fact i think you did i think you did a little bit of that in your follow up parking in the city where you kind of uh, looked at cities that have implemented some of your practices. But uh, one thing specifically I wanted you to touch, touch base on was the, the story used in the introduction. I just love it. It has to do with what we're talking about with parking minimums and, and the rest. But I think it was something like you said, go back to the dawn of the automobile age. And if you were Henry Ford and John D. Rockefeller and you wanted to uh, task waste to ensure the cities would be dependent on cars and gasoline forever, you would do these three things and pretty much that's what city planners did anyway. But can you tell that story? Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about?
1: Well, it's the first paragraph of the parking of the city. You know, I, I have to admit that the, the original book, The High Cost of Free Parking, was 750 pages long, which is far too long for anybody, even who cares about parking. <laughs> uh, but if they care about cities, they don't want to read a 750-page book on parking. So people said you ought to, have a shortened version of it. So in this new book, I had a 50-page introduction, maybe even that's too long, which is a summary of the 750 pages. And then I invited uh, people like you and and um, you know practitioners and, and academics who have published articles on parking, who have studied what has happened in response to the book you know, about the three policies, removing parking requirements and Charging market prices for parking on spending the revenue. So that's what the book is about. I think there are 52 chapters saying, well, here's how these ideas have have worked out. And in the first, I guess the first paragraph that struck you, I said, well, suppose Henry Ford and John D. Rockefeller had asked you uh, for planning policies that would uh, maximize the demand for automobiles and fuel. Well, uh, the first one is to. separate uses you know housing here jobs there and shopping someplace else so that uh, it would create demand for travel among these these different areas and then the second policy is to limit density so that each one of these areas has to be single family housing or the office buildings could be no more than four stories tall or something like that, to make sure that we limit density. That's what zoning is all about. It's about limiting density. Planners never try to encourage density. Zoning is all about limiting density, what you can and you can't do. And then the third policy would be to require uh, ample off-street parking everywhere. And that would mean that the city is spread out and there's segregated land uses and there's free parking wherever you go. Well, driving is the obvious way for most travel. I mean, if you're an individual, and you think, well, I have to go to school and I have to go shopping and I have to go work, and you really need a car. And I think that th- those are the policies that cities have recommended. And I, again, I'm saying <laughs> we've done everything backwards. We've done exactly the wrong things, that our policies are doing a lot of harm. And I think we have a terrific opportunity. You know, I think that. We have so much parking now that there are a lot of better uses of that land that you just take pictures of shopping centers, you see all the empty parking spaces or office parks with all the empty parking spaces. I think this is uh, land that's available for, for housing or for, especially for job adjacent housing everywhere. The, the new urbanists say that one of the things you'd have is liner buildings around parking lots. that that even if there is a big parking lot that facing the sidewalk should be a regular, you know, should be housing or offices or something like that wouldn't be more than 20 or 30 feet deep. It's a liner of the parking lot. So I think there are a lot of places we can have infill development on, on land that's already assembled and it's, it's not brownfields or anything like that. And, And there's a lot of parking behind it. So I think we have a terrific opportunity that, that I think we could have, you know, a land reclamation that is greater than everything outside the Netherlands. That we have so much land available for higher and better uses, and I think that COVID nineteen has showed us that there are a lot better uses for the curb lanes uh, because uh, cities have uh, cordoned off some streets, so the streets become
0: tables, uh, tables, uh, yeah, restaurants seating.
1: and things like that. But there is another way to live, uh, and I think that the curb lane. Which is now filled with cars in most cases paying nothing, uh, they could be the curb lanes in some cases could become best lanes or bike lanes, or now we really need more
0: um, loading zones for uber and, uh... they're going to be called smart loading zones. I know that's
1: companies that's like right. cord, uh,
0: cord are, are working on that and and I think we're seeing a big change in, in recent years. I know dr was it Iran Ar- ben Joseph from Harvard? He wrote that book, Rethinking a lot, but Rethinking yes, the ways helps. we use parking lot. The company I work for now, Reef. Our mission is to you know Rethinking parking, real estate, by putting cloud kitchens, mobility hubs, scooter parking, storage, uh, lockers, all that. So it's I think we're starting to see that. And and I want to touch base too with your your story. I love you know tying history into kind of parking and transportation. You've you, I've heard you talk about. Uh, lead poisoning and tying that into into parking planning in the early 20th century another one i love is the horse manure i've seen some planners talk about that how in new york city before the advent of the car there was some hundred and fifty thousand horses in new york city and they each would produce up to 30 pounds of manure a day so they did the math and there was three to four million pounds of manure being discarded into the streets every day and of course manure uh, cause flies the horses would die and they weigh three thousand pounds so they couldn't move them Uh, manure releases methane and greenhouse gas which is bad for the environment and they thought they didn't know what to do they had this big horse problem, and they thought the world's gonna end all our traffic problems and then came the this savior this 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 automobile that that changed the cities forever and they, they i don't know i just love uh i get tickled hearing stories like that tying it into parking and transportation.
1: Well that that is that is a great story. Um, and I think that maybe 100 years from now people will look back at us the way we look back at New York City in 1900 is that they were the, the place was filthy uh, it was, yep. it, the land, everything was everything was terrible. But this is the way it was. You know, the, something the,
0: called COVID happened, and, and, and then, yeah. well,
1: but I think a hundred years from now they they'll say you know, especially if global warming really does happen, and as bad as some people think it will be. You, you mean they had free parking? They drove around and around and around the block <laughs> hunting <laughs> for a parking space. They knew what they had been warned about global warming, and they did this anyway that I think they'll look back on us and, and say, well, these people didn't know, they didn't have a clue as to what they were doing. And I think that if we do solve the problem, it will be looked as as miraculous as going from horse-drawn carts and, oh, and, and, yeah. and carriages. It, we will seem as primitive and, and wrong-headed <laughs> as they oh, were. A-
0: absolutely. And I think one thing is, one reason for the, the tide changing is this term, chupista. Uh, so you have this loyal following of uh, fellow chupistas, planners, uh, parking professionals. There's some 5,000 members on the chupistas Facebook. So uh, hopefully that they, they help change the tune here. But when, when did you first hear this term and, wh- and how did you take it? I'm just interested when you, when you first heard of this, were you tickled about it?
1: Well, you know, I have been um, working on parking for a long time. I, I, when I was uh, putting together my curriculum but the first paper that I published with the word parking in it was in, in 1970. That was 50 years ago. And wow. I, had, I had written quite a few articles on parking, but nothing that a practitioner would ever see, you know, because they were in academic journals. You know, a, a young academic has to, published in in academic journals to stay in academia and uh, so I had uh written a lot of these ideas in separate articles over the years and there was a student at Stanford who an undergraduate who picked up on it and he later worked for the Stanford transportation division and he worked on parking and then he went to to uh san francisco and worked for a uh, a famous consultant called Ni- nelson nygaard who is uh, they do parking as well yep. as a lot of transportation and because san francisco is such a dense dense city you know they don't have parking requirements downtown so it's <laughs> it shows what can happen if you don't have minimum parking requirements say that uh, and because the, the the there there are no density limits and no parking requirements. Well, there were density limits, but not very low. And, and and parking bars. There are a lot of people gather in bars, and they're even separated by the interest of the users. There's one bar that a, a lot of the people in transportation went to. A very handy thing. And Patrick Sigmund, he's a he's a student. He was yes, he was known as. Did you see this new paper by Don Shu? And people were fed up hearing him say that. And then one of them looked at him disgustedly and said, you're just a chupista. And, and it, it's like a Sandinista <laughs> or something. It sounds, it, I think it, the way it, it became popular is it sounds left wing, like a Sandinista yeah. or a marxista or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But it's really very market-oriented. And that name caught on.
0: Oh, it's great. I love the page. And another one we talked about, but I think it's called the the parking pomegranate, the, the onion uh, version of, of parking. It says that I found I was tickled about that, but it said that you petitioned Hasbro to remove the free parking space in Monopoly. So I just want to set the record straight. That that is not true, correct? <laughs> well, so
1: I, I, I posted it and some people thought it was true. You know, they didn't realize it was a satire. It's uh, I I never heard of the palm granite before, but now I, I love it. I mean, it's I, I'll get all my information on parking from the pomegranate. <laughs> so That's all I need to know about parking is what I learned from palm granite.
0: A couple of those hit too close to home. I have one last question for you. So I read on your Wikipedia page that you moved to Hawaii in 1940 as your father worked in the U.S. Navy. So I'm not sure as far as all the naval bases in Hawaii, but I was curious if your father was working at Pearl Harbor during the Pearl Harbor attack or was that a different military base?
1: Yes, yes. My father's uh, ship was uh, stationed at Pearl Harbor, which is why we, um, we, we moved there. I was born in Long Beach because my father's ship was in, in Long Beach, but the, the fleet had moved to Hawaii, um, and along with his ship, the Astoria. But surprisingly, his, his ship was out, of, out at sea that, the day of the attack with a Hollywood movie company on board using it as a set. No <laughs> way. And, of course, the, the ships that were at sea stayed at sea trying to hunt for the Japanese. I think that he, he stayed at sea for six weeks with the movie company on board. But my my earliest memory is the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, so life has been comparatively calm ever since.
0: Wow. So, like, what do you mean by by that? Were you at a military base near? Pearl Harbor. I mean, were you?
1: Well, we lived in Honolulu in Manoa Valley, right near the the University of
0: Hawaii. Uh, what were your memories like? Sound, you, could you hear the bombings, or just how your how your I parents were The airplanes. Were by I think. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I remember the excitement of everything happening. I mean, the, the world turned upside down on that day. Pose is confused by the fact that my parents had a movie camera and it took a lot of a lot of. Uh, Uh, movies before and after the attack. I think that when I retired, they put these things together in a a sort of video of my life. But it shows my brother and me swimming at Waikiki, Uh, (laughs) the only two people in the ocean. And then my parents had a camera, but no projector. So they really weren't very good at at, at their their skills, but their video skills. So they just turned the camera back from the ocean to the beach There was nothing on the beach except the Royal Hawaiian Hotel and three or four cars parked perpendicular to the curb. And that was it. (laughs) It was a very peaceful life. And then after that, I was wearing a gas mask. and um, They had gas masks, I think, for kids that they had Mickey Mouse on them or Donald Duck or something like that. It was a a lot of awful things are happening now, but I think
0: they, they pale in comparison to
1: World War II.
0: Oh my good, Yeah. So I have a similar story, not near as, as exciting as yours, but I was born in Panama, Central America, and I was four during Operation Just Cause. And we were actually a few houses down from where Noriega was in his compound. And I remember they started bombing and you could hear the, the shells and we were sent to the basement and my mom actually i'll see if i can find it maybe i'll put it at the end of the, the show the recording but you know baby i had three or four brothers at the time and we're, we're crying you hear the bombing and house shaking and and my father was actually had to go back to our uh, our house uh, we were staying at a grandparent's house actually made it worse because where the bombings were and everything was happening but uh, he got actually got um, held up uh, held at gunpoint they thought he was like a you know, government inspire with the military. So he was, he was held up. So my mom just had me and my brothers in the basement with my grandparents who, who lived there in Panama. But so it's, again, it's, I was four, so I, it's, I remember, you know, the sounds, I listened to the recording. It was one of my f- first memories too. And you're right. Once you, once you go through something like that, standing in front of a Angry business owners wanting to talk about parking is uh, not, not as stressful. <laughs> <That's laughs> Arguing
1: with a thrift shop owner in Delray Beach <laughs> <It> is nothing. <laughs> That's great. Uh,
0: thank you so much, Doctor Shoot, for uh, giving me the time. It means a lot. You, even throughout my years, you probably don't remember it, but just I'd send you an email and you you'd always respond. And I was always shocked. I'd ask a question and you would always give your opinion. You would think you read some articles and gave me some feedback but I appreciate you joining the podcast and everything you've done for this industry. It uh, means a lot to us.
1: Well, I've really enjoyed it, and
0: I've learned a lot. All the best. Yeah, no, all the best to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Shub. Have a great week. Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Parker Technology, the customer experience solution of choice in the parking industry. Parker Solution puts a virtual ambassador in every lane to help parking guests pay and get on their way in under a minute. Parker helps capture revenue, provides better customer service, enables your staff to focus on other on-site tasks, and keeps traffic moving, all according to your business rules. With the Parker solution, you'll also enjoy access to real-time call data and recordings. Learn more at helpmeparker.com slash parkingpodcasts. This episode is brought to you by Tez Technology. Since 1993, Tez has developed innovative text-based mobile solutions designed to streamline operations, increase efficiency, and improve overall customer experiences. My favorite is the ability to pay for parking without having to download an app. Tez Solutions includes SMS VLA, text-to-park, permit-to-park, and much more. I think every organization or city or university should be adding Tez to their payment options arsenal. Learn more about Tez at tezhq.com. Earlier in the podcast, I said if I find the recording of our family during Operation Just Cause that I'd played after the podcast, my mother was able to find the tape recording. But the recording is from 1989 on a cheap cassette player, so it's very scratchy. Uh, Some things, you can't really hear what they're saying, but I thought I would play a few minutes of it to give you an idea of what we went through. The setting is that it's December 1989 in Panama, Central America. My mother and my three brothers were staying at my grandparents' house for Christmas. My dad was on the other side of Panama because he had some things to attend to. Uh, little did we know, America was about to invade Panama. My uh, grandparents lived about 100 yards from a PDF, Panamanian Defense Force military base. So the invasion began on December 20th. The first night, we all just huddled in the basement as it was pretty heavy artillery. This recording is the second night. My three brothers and I are in the basement, but my mom and her parents went upstairs to check things out from their window after the major bombing had subsided. But you can still clearly hear gunfire, grenades and other explosions if you uh, listen carefully. So, uh, here's a few minutes from the from the tape recording that that I found interesting. Thankfully we're all safe and uh, we still talk about those times. Here it is. see that one man, just mm-hmm. guys are mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got he's got the mm-hmm. No, no, I I can see that it's looking. Yeah. yeah, I mean, nothing. Down there you can see it out there. It looks like they see the building the outside of it. I'm feeling it's nice. It's closer. Not there now. they tires went we'll around that. At least you know they're inside. Now here come. Oh man. Oh, yes. Wow. You sound like a grenade. Right down the street. Yeah. yeah. You can smell it, smells. Yeah, nice. Mm.